to me, it's sort of like discovering Silicon Valley back in like the early 90s or something. Like we can see what's coming. Most people think we're crazy. We're in a very small minority, but we know that we're at the bottom of this S curve and we know where it's going. And so basically, if you can just hitch a ride to it and start teaching people about it and educate people, um, it's going to be actually hard to not be successful, I believe, uh, if you're a part of the Bitcoin story. Um, just like if you were a part of the internet story 25 years ago, it was hard not to be successful. That's what I counsel people like, quit trying to pick the bottom just like learn to recognize value like bitcoin is very very fairly valued and it's even cheap right now historically this is the time to be buying um, instead of trading it so. the opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinion of arcos global advisors or its advisors the mention of different asset types or securities do not constitute a recommendation for our clients if you have any questions about the content of this podcast, please contact your advisor. In this episode of Navigating Bitcoin's Noise, I'm joined by Jeff Ross of Bellshire Capital to discuss the macro drivers of our current markets. In our discussion, we cover Jeff's value-tilted view and what role Bitcoin might play in the economy going forward. Jeff shares his view of Bitcoin as money and its future potential as a major asset class. We dig in on Jeff's economic outlook on the changing financial landscape due to inflation, potential stagflation, leverage, and how Bitcoin fits into the challenges within the broader macroeconomic system. If you're looking to better understand Bitcoin's past and its future potential as an economic network, then join us and listen in. All right, thanks everybody for joining today. I have with me Jeff Ross, institutional investor, runs a hedge fund, Bellshire Capital. Uh, Jeff, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself, kind of how you uh, merged over to the uh, macroeconomics uh, investing side from the medical industry? Sure. Well, first of all, thanks for having me, Kane. It's nice to get to do this with you. Um, for me, it starts way back. So I'm, I'm an old guy. I'm 47. So way back in uh, college in the early to mid 1990s, I, I was a guy who wanted to be a doctor, but also loved investing. And I had to make a decision, right? I had to pick something. I couldn't do both. So I picked being a doctor. Uh, so that swept me down this whole path of, you know, I did, did my undergrad pre-med stuff, biology major, uh, then went to medical school for four years, um, took two years off in between to go. Uh, I lived in Jerusalem and worked in a hospice for a little bit and, uh, and then did some work as a nursing assistant for another year here in the States. Uh, then started med school um, and then from there went off to Milwaukee where I did residency in uh, diagnostic radiology and then did some a fellowship in something called interventional radiology, which is image guided minimally invasive surgery. That took me all the way to the year 2008 when I finally got out of training. My, my wife and kids, we moved to Colorado Springs, which is where I am uh, now. Uh, back then, and then probably about a year out uh, of of training, and where I was just you know doing my stuff as my thing as a private practice doctor, I remembered that I, I loved investing, and so I had been doing some stuff on the side. But it, to to be honest, you know, medicine is so consuming when you're in the middle of it; it's really hard to focus on pretty much anything else. And we were having kids at the time and everything, so life was just pretty crazy. So remembered that I loved investing. 2009 or so, I started a blog teaching people how to invest wisely on their own. Um, and then quickly got picked up by uh, an outfit called The Motley Fool, writing investment advisory articles for them. Um, and then after that, started writing, doing some stuff for Seeking Alpha as well. So by that time, I had, this is probably 2011-ish, 2012, I had built up enough of an audience of people who said, hey, I really like your style, like, you know, the way you pick stocks. I like it that you're focused on healthcare and technology kind of things. Could you manage my money? And I'd always tell people, oh, no, I just do this for fun. I'm just a doctor. You know, this is just kind of my little side hobby. Um, but it planted a, a seed in my brain. And I thought, wow, if I could do this, you know, get back to kind of what uh, the other thing I used to always love, uh, invest if I could do this for a living, um, that would be interesting. So I started looking into things in the finance world and just decided ultimately that I would really love to do is be a hedge fund manager. Not like the traditional hedge fund managers most people see on TV, uh, you know, these billionaire dudes that, that go around and make these big market calls. I'm just like a normal guy, but what I like about being a hedge fund manager is I can kind of do my own thing. I can march to the, the beat of my own drum and I can invest in kind of what I believe we should be invested in. As long as I can find clients who, who are into that, uh, I, should, I should do pretty well. So uh, founded Valeshire in 2013, opened my hedge fund at the beginning of 2014. About eight months into it, I realized that uh, having a hedge fund is awesome, but it's hard to get clients 
when the SEC only allows accredited investors to be in the fund. Um, I realized that that basically excluded about 95% plus of the people I knew. So I'm like, okay, I got to do something for the rest of my you know, colleagues and friends and stuff. So I started doing a, a separately managed accounts kind of in the, the middle of 2014. So that's how Valeshire kind of began. I literally started out in 2014 with zero clients, just 120,000 of my own money. I plopped it into the hedge fund. I turned the, the sign to open and said, all right, let's do this. And so I went months and months without any clients. I was just kind of winging it at first. So it's been a, it's been a great experience. I learned a lot. I, you know, on the side, of course, I had my full-time gig as a doctor. I was a radiologist, an interventional radiologist. I was on call every fourth night. Um, that got to be a little intense as Valeshire started to grow. Um, so I eventually cut out the interventional radiology side of what I did. Um, so I wasn't on call anymore. I just was working kind of full-time. That helped me to do Valeshire a little bit better. Um, 2017 to 2019, I went out and got my MBA in finance, uh, just to, you know, just so I wasn't just some random doctor. People actually started to believe maybe I, maybe I know something about finance and I have some qualifications for it. Um, and then by 2021, uh, which so about eight or nine months ago, I was finally able to retire completely from medicine uh, and do just Valeshire. So basically what I do now is I just manage my hedge fund, uh, my separately managed account clients. Um, and then I spend a lot of time on Twitter talking about Bitcoin and teaching about uh, finance, macroeconomics, Bitcoin, and investing in general. So, yeah, so I'm having a good time enjoying life. That's an interesting story. It's awesome to hear. I mean, you don't hear people late cycle to make that big of a career shift, especially all the time, effort, and energy and expense that it takes to go into the medical field. Um, not a shocker. Uh, obviously, you're a smart guy. To be able to transition that knowledge base over to um, you know financial markets, right? Uh, I think a lot of times you'll find, and that's that's the neatest thing about Bitcoin is is just intellectually curious people. When you came in and, and the way that you look at the land, was it value tilted? What was your style? Yeah, sure. So, so when I first started, I was basically a value-oriented stock picker. You know, like in the in the the wake of Buffett and, and these guys, um, and so. Uh, and I was focused in healthcare and technology. Um, and that was kind of like the articles I used to write, you know, I'd pick a stock, I would, I would do my valuation models on it. And then I'd come up, yes, this is a strong buy right now or not, or whatever, it's overpriced. Um, so I, I ran my fund like that. And honestly, it wasn't until I discovered Bitcoin that that kind of took me down a different turn. So two major thing happens is I, I used to, so I come from this value oriented roots. For the last decade, as most people know, basically from the financial crisis through about 2020-ish, um, value investing didn't really work very well, right? We, we, we lagged the market in general. Growth stocks were just, that was the name of the game. If you weren't in growth and momentum, you got destroyed. And so that sort of helped me to tilt more easily. I also love technology. So kind of healthcare technology, innovation, that kind of stuff. It helped me to tilt more and more strongly into those sectors. Because basically all you needed to do was be a business that could grow revenues that had an exciting narrative that could mm -hmm. borrow money for dirt cheap and could just churn out revenues. It didn't even matter if you could make a profit. Nobody cared about that. Um, those were the stocks that just crushed it. They totally outperformed value for the last decade. So things have significantly changed since then. So, so those are the major two things that happened to me. I went from this stock picking value guy to more growth oriented. And then along came Bitcoin. And that also, I made a major, major transition and decided like, I need to ride these coattails um, to victory because I think Bitcoin is definitely the, the name of the game for the 2020s and 2030s probably as well. To me, it's sort of like discovering Silicon Valley back in like the early nineties or something like we can see what's coming. Most people think we're crazy. We're in a very small minority, but we know that we're at the bottom of this S curve and we know where it's going. And so basically, if you can just hitch a ride to it and start teaching people about it and educate people, um, it's going to be actually hard to not be successful, I believe, uh, if you're a part of the Bitcoin story. Um, just like if you were a part of the internet story 25 years ago, it was hard not to be successful. So I think we're in the same kind of stage right now. I think it's clearly a secular growth trend um, and it's going to literally kind of reshape the entire monetary uh, world, the whole financial system um, in, in years to come. So we can, I'm sure we're going to get into that kind of stuff, but, but that's, that's where I am. That's how Valeshire has morphed over the last eight years or so. I would agree with all that. And I think that's for the people that maybe still are on the fence or naysaying or just like, ah, I don't know if I ever believe in, in this Bitcoin stuff, this crypto stuff and, and where all of this is going. Right. They might look at the Luna things and be like, see, this is why we shouldn't be doing it. I think they are missing kind of it is a second iteration of the Internet. It is a backbone that's being built out digitally. And this is the first time that software has fully laser focused on 
using money as a protocol or using money to kind of trend. I mean, we use money electronically got credit card networks and that's digital and you don't really think about what's in your account. It's like, oh, there's another zero at the end, you know, the numbers group, but it's not integrated and connected into the system like uh, voice or music or e-commerce or all the other things. So I, I definitely agree with that. The runway is long. We're just, mm-hmm. we're early. Um, you know, you look at any other past technologies or oil, when it first came out, the volatility is crazy and the you know, prices spike all over the place. And, yeah, boom and bust cycle. So I think we should fully expect those things. Um, one of the other interesting pieces you mentioned there, which is the same common theme of all the uh, more experienced investors that I've had on, the ones that I'll talk to um, that have decades in the you know, general financial services industry, whether it be wealth management or hedge funds or institutional capacity, whatever it might be, is they all have that value tilt. And so I think when you, on the outside, when you look at, Bitcoin in, in the broader universe, you're sitting there and you're like, well, it's just kind of meme finance. You know, if we can get number go up, everybody's going to get excited, push it, and then people start exiting the classic, you know, bus cycle happens. But all the smartest money is rooted into the value side, which they're looking at the fundamental metrics, the things that really drive the network or drive the technology or drive the future use case of productivity. So maybe you can share a little bit how you view that, how you, when you look at Bitcoin relative to or other uh, holdings, how you assign a weighting to how much that position should be and, and what are the fundamental benefits that you like? Sure. So first of all, what I, what I, I think a lot of value investors have been sort of late to the Bitcoin game for multiple reasons. I think the, the one thing that's sort of funny, and I say it tongue in cheek, but it's actually serious, is that I tell my value investing friends, Bitcoin isn't a stock, right? It doesn't have cash flows. It's, it's not, you don't value it based on, you know, the, the growth of earnings or price to sales or all these, these, these uh, metrics we're used to using. It has nothing to do with that. Bitcoin, when I talk to these people, it's simply better money. It's just money. That's all it is. Like you don't, you think about it like you think about maybe gold or you think about it like the dollar, um, but it's not like a company. So that's the first thing to kind of get out of the way. That's what value investors, they just cannot grasp this. Like, how do I value this thing? Because they can't put it into their mind, uh, into any of the models that they have learned in school or that they've been using in practice. So, so the point is, what is Bitcoin? You know, why is it better money? You can get into the properties of that. And, and I think what's interesting about Bitcoin is there was no chance for the world to have a nearly perfect or perfect money before we entered the digital age, right? So I think for the last you know, several millennia, let's say, depending on how, how long uh, people have been using gold, gold has been the best store of value for the analog age. You know, there's it has many properties about it that 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 make it fantastic money. The reason why cash, fiat cash, the U.S. dollar, and other government currencies even exist is because of gold, right? They used to be uh, basically a coupon for redemption for some gold, and then that all changed in 1971. You know, Nixon, as as most people listen to this probably know, Nixon took us off the gold standard, and it just became just pure fiat, literally worth nothing, but backed by you know the 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 strength and might of the of the United States Army, uh, the full faith and trust of the of the United States. So depending on your views on that, I'm not I'm not a political guy. I don't really care. But it really was just sort of backed by nothing, a nothing piece of paper backed by nothing other than you got to trust us that this is worth something. So fiat. Sorry, go ahead. No, that's not to cut you off. But that is a really key point. When you look at the history of money, uh, you know, outside of a tangible piece of collateral like gold or some coin or some, you know, physical token, money is not ever backed by anything. There are periods when it's backed by something, but it's just full faith and credit of the issuing institution. And right. in this case, it's the, the Bitcoin network that is issuing these coins until they become all mined. And so that's, that's a key component that, you know, I think the traditional investors, they think that that money is backed by something. Reality is it's not. Absolutely. And the temptation for governments, you know, the world, the U.S. has had the world reserve currency for decades and decades. The temptations for government to debase the currency basically to steal the purchasing power of their citizens uh, by printing more money to pay off bills that they can't pay. It's literally irresistible. And so that's why all government fiat currency trends towards zero over time, zero value. So the, the value of a dollar, I guarantee at some point, 
uh, maybe not in our lifetimes, but sometime in the next hundred years or so will be zero. Uh, and it's already trending very strongly towards that. I think it's just kind of irrefutable. The same thing happened with the British Empire before us. The same thing happened with all major empires. Going back to the Roman Empire, you can watch it. They debased their currency um, with emperor after emperor until it was worth nothing and their country fell apart. Um, that's, that's what happens uh, to, with government fiat currency. So gold has been the best form of money. You know, people ask uh, all the time, they'll say, well, what is Bitcoin backed by? It's like, that's not the right question to ask. That's like saying, what is gold backed by? It doesn't even really make sense. Gold isn't backed by anything because it just has intrinsic properties of being a great form of money. People figure that out. You can have lots of things that could be money. Gold has kind of been selected as the best. Silver was, you know, the second place for a long time. Uh, that's been mostly demonetized now and is basically just a commodity now. Fiat has no intrinsic properties. It's a good medium of exchange. It has some, you know, little fleeting properties. Um, but so Bitcoin is more like gold in that aspect that it has properties that make it a good money. So getting back to the full question, how do we value this thing? What do people look for? Like you don't treat it like a stock, you think of it like money. Um, how much How much would you hold in your portfolio of US dollars? I would say most people are comfortable actually keeping 100% of their savings in dollars. I think that's funny, right? So, people, so I have this discussion with people who believe in Bitcoin. They'll say, well, Bitcoin is so volatile, I can't hold too much of it. And I say, okay, would you rather have low volatility with guaranteed depreciation, guaranteed loss of purchasing power over time? That's what the dollar offers you. Or high volatility with, I would say guaranteed appreciation built into its program based on the, the monetary principles of Bitcoin and its, its complete scarcity and other things like that. All of that is knowable, but it's basically, I would say, close to guaranteed appreciation of value over time, but with lots of volatility. It's this trade-off that you have, but once you understand what Bitcoin is and you realize where the risks are, and you realize that only in academia does volatility equals equal risk, um, that's sort of a, an academic concept more than a practical concept. I think real financial risk is the chance of losing your purchasing power over time placed on where you you place your purchasing power. So if you put your purchasing power in US treasuries, which are supposedly risk-free um, or in the US dollar, I would argue that's actually risky because you're basically guaranteed to lose your purchasing power over any significant amount of time. So that's how I look at Bitcoin. How much should you put in your portfolio? Totally depends on how much you understand Bitcoin. The more you know Bitcoin, the more you'll own Bitcoin. I know you know that too, but that's been my experience with people uh, for the last several years. Yeah, that, it's a, a tough conversation because people come to you, they come to us and they're like, well, how much should I own? And it's really the wrong question to start with. Yep. It's what's your risk tolerance? So the reality is that any dollar that you put in something, whether it's rocks, Bitcoin, stocks, bonds, there is a, there is an assignment of risk. There's a risk factor to all of those things that, you know, you've got a lamp in the background. Well, there's a risk that you buy that thing and the light bulb doesn't work. That added value in your life that it lit up your room you need that thing so there's a sign of all those things investors a lot of times forget about that because we're so programmed to okay i put a hundred dollars in the market and then five years from now when i want to get it it's five hundred dollars and everything i won and the reality is that doesn't happen and that's back to your point on volatility i think is crucial an asset with no volatility is not an asset it's it's just you know because that's where all your purchasing power goes and so mm -hmm. If, if you need assets over time, you need things with varying rates of volatility within your portfolio. And then that feeds into, well, how much risk are you willing to take? How much can you emotionally take? There's a lot of other questions that are more, you know, on the personal level. Like what can you stomach every day when you look at your account swings? And obviously mm -hmm. you don't want those swings to be so broad you know, that you're feeling sick and like, why am I in this thing? Um, but, and then back on the money piece, you know, I think one of the things we're just in this period where we're transitioning monies from, you know, went from gold to the dollar because the dollar worked better for people in the thirties and forties than gold did. Gold couldn't move around. So dollars are now moving around. Then we got to that kind of area in the seventies where the dollars didn't really work, you know? And so we introduced treasuries and other collateral like securities for other countries to be able to access this great dollar network that was really built on top of gold. And now here we are, you know, really kind of mid early 2000s, but definitely here in the 2020s where we're having to come up with some other collateral like unit of account to create this additional level of medium exchange so that credit can expand across uh, more people 
a broader network and all that. And so I think people get lost in, in, in that sense. And they say, well, dollar's going to go to zero. It could. But, you know, if you look at the Roman currency, I think it was 300 years before it effectively went away. You just get people using it less and less as other networks spawn off that, that carry monetary value. So do you have any thoughts around that or um, ideas yeah. based on that? Yeah, sure, sure. So I think when we, so first of all, to, to your point, the dollar is the, you know, Greg Foss says, I like this quote, it's it's the best the best crack house on the crack street. So that's how the US dollar. So the dollar has lots of yeah. issues, but it's still the strongest currency in the world. It still clearly is the world reserve currency. Um, it's That is fading, it's, its dominance is fading slowly. Um, and I think it's inevitable that it continues to fade, um, but it will be around for a long time. So I like to make that very clear. I, I, I harp on the dollar all the time and make fun of it, but it's still the best fiat currency. I, I look at it. It's, yeah. it's, it's totally true. I mean, but the fact is, if we need to go to the store right now, that's what right. Use. Yeah. And it's an awesome medium of exchange for sure. Right. It's a terrible store of value, but a great medium of exchange. Um, so, so what do I think is going to happen? I think if we look 10 years out, I think a huge number of smaller country fiat, uh, smaller government fiats are actually going to go away. So kind of with that whole dollar milkshake theory, I think that's actually kind of how I view the world as well. I think lots of small countries are going to, uh, you know, as people deal with hyperinflation, whether you're in Lebanon or Venezuela or, you know, pick a country, Turkey, um, where you see your purchasing power, you, you've saved up, right? You worked hard your whole life. You have your money in the bank and the bank says, okay, it's not worth anything anymore. We're going to print, you know, a trillion of these and it's going to go drive the value down 95% or whatever. That sucks. And people hate that. And so that's why people in those kind of countries, they really get Bitcoin much more than we do here in America. Most Americans still think of it as like a tech stock, like a speculative, you know, thing to, to put your money in and maybe make 10x or something if you're lucky. Um, and I think that's why they gravitate towards crypto. Uh, and uh, from Bitcoin, they see the other shiny object that they can make even more money speculating. Countries where they're dealing with high inflation and hyperinflation, they intrinsically understand Bitcoin, right? And so I think over time, what's going to happen in the next, say, 10, 15, 20 years from now, most of those government fiat currencies are going to basically collapse and go away. And I think that purchasing power transfers into the U.S. dollar. If you're a, if you're a U.S. friendly country, I think the Chinese yuan is going to get increasingly strong if you're in that block of countries that believes in that uh, whole system. And then third, Bitcoin. So I think those are going to be the big three 10 years from now. That's where most of the world's purchasing power will have uh, migrated to. And all of the rest of the things or most of the rest of the government fiat currencies are going to be basically ne negligent at that point, uh, including the big currencies, including the euro, including the Japanese yen, uh, these other large kind of G7 countries. I, I think that's just how it's going to go and people are going to migrate to the best money. And eventually, I think obviously with my biases, Bitcoin is going to come out on top, you know, 10, 20, 30 years and more from now. Well, and it, it better suits the needs of people today. It's, it's based on data. It's based on internet technologies, protocols, mm -hmm. and, and integration connection where none of our prior monies, none of these monies that we use are really set up to to handle that uh, capacity, that velocity, that yep. that breadth across systems that actually communicate versus these this siloed dollar network that we have today. Um, a couple of points there. I I put out a couple of things. One, I think in the summer was just looking at, or or maybe it's in the fall. Um, the you know, okay, if if we just have choices of stocks, S and P five hundred, gold, sound money, and dollars. You know, arguably for the last hundred years, you can make it really simple. Obviously, you could do bonds, whatever, but just make it really simple. You, you had like, uh, I don't know, since the 20s, a 52,000% return in stocks, a 400% return in gold, and like a negative 80% dollars. And you just carried that out into the 50s when the S&P actually got defined, and then in the 90s where you could actually buy it. And uh, I saw this post in MacroAlf, uh, same thing. I think I shared it with you. And he looked at over the last couple hundred years, you, you got stock returns, bond returns, bills, gold, and dollar. Well, it was exactly the same. Massively, you made returns in stocks. You made intermediate returns in bonds. Gold was, you know, up, but relatively flat. And then dollars were, you know, super negative. So I think the point I'm trying to make here is that if you go all in on one thing, your odds of being, you know, wrong or just not, you know, as well suited in the future are much higher than if you figure out, okay, what does my wealth look like? 
what do my future goals and plans look like? What does my purchasing habits look like today? What do I expect them to be in the future? And then how do I allocate these dollars across the three or four buckets that will suit those needs as time change? Because I think there's a lot of just number go up. Bitcoin is the only thing, the only asset you should own, nothing else. And while you know it sounds good and, and it creates hype and, and brings people to the network, uh, the way we live, eat, sleep, breathe, and the things we do tell us that we need different types of money. And, and I think what's interesting about Bitcoin and the broader crypto ecosystem is you're building out that same risk curve. And so you, know, you got all the altcoins and all the FUD and all the blowups. People do make money, but most of them get blown away. Um, 10 years, there'll probably be some integrations that connect into the Bitcoin, connects into the dollar network. And then ultimately in 30 years, it's probably centralized exactly as you said. Um, but I think that's a big piece for me as just an investor. I step out and, and look at uh, how do I need to allocate? So how do you think about that in your hedge fund when you look at the different choices and the decisions that you need to make uh, from a capital allocation standpoint? Yeah, that's a good question. So, so you know, I, I look at everything through kind of a macro lens. I have a top-down view in general with the way I do things. And I, I'm, I run money really differently, especially in my separately managed accounts compared to how most investment advisors do it and, and financial planners. My thought, I, I'm, I'm just one of these guys, like I'm just kind of hyper rational. And, and so I would be like, well, I know that the 60-40 traditional stock bond portfolio is what most people do. But I would sit here and think, but man, if I think bonds are actually going to literally lose your purchasing power for the next 10 years, you know, they were a great investment from right the early 80s all the way until I think any time in the last couple of years, the last 40 years, it's been in a, it's been in a great bull market. If I think that that's not going to continue, why in the world would we invest in bonds? You know, more than just a trivial amount if you're going to invest any. That's just kind of how my mind works. So that's how I do things. I look at things. I think where can I generate alpha? Where do I think the huge secular trends are happening? Uh, you know, one of the obvious ones, again, I think is Bitcoin. So that, that's, that, that's just one, but we can, you, you can talk about lots of other things. And then, and then um, how do we, we want to weight our portfolio towards that? So basically, where can we get the best, the best risk-adjusted return? So the highest sharp ratio across these asset classes. And then I'll just invest accordingly. So we try to get kind of a, a diversified portfolio in these things that I think can generate alpha in the current macro conditions. And then I back it up with my this trading system that I've developed that's basically volatility and momentum based too. So I can have a I can have a macro view that says one thing, like right now I'm very bearish, but if my my trends and my and my signals turn bullish, I will trust my system before I trust my view, right? Because I'll that just means I'm wrong somewhere. I defer to the markets. So if the markets tell me I'm wrong, like right now, I will tell you that. I've been very bearish since January on the risk on assets in general. One of my two of my theses at that time were um, you should you want to be long bonds when the when we get towards recessionary conditions and you want to not be in energy stocks. Both of those premises were very wrong, right? So my system said, no, you're wrong. Like oil is going to go high, inflation is high, oil is driving this very high, um, and long bonds, which generally you want to be in those kind of things for recessionary type conditions, they are also not doing very well. They've been getting kind of hammered. Rates have still been rising. The 10-year today is sitting at 2.93, so it's still high. I think it's high, by the way, because it's trapped between these high levels of inflation and low long-term growth expectations. Normally, those two go hand in hand over time, so bond rates continue to kind of quietly fall. That's what we've dealt with since the late 80s. Um, and so now we're in a period where inflation has suddenly ramped up. Long-term growth expectations are low, and the bond yield for the 10 and the 30 years is sort of stuck in the middle. I think it's basically a stupid investment at this point, because unless you want to trade it, you, it's really hard to know what direction that's going to go into. So that's kind of my view on bonds. I stay away from asset classes that I just don't think we're going to be able to generate alpha. I migrate to the classes uh, I think still can. Even though I think that stocks are going to have a tough slog uh, of it lately, um, I think they're going to have a tough slog through basically this entire decade of stagflation, which I expect to have. There are companies that will do well. So I've sort of transitioned over from the growth and innovation type stocks that we talked about earlier, you know, the Kathy Wood arc type stocks, those the, the story stocks, and more into these robust companies that are more capital efficient that can grind it out and, and churn out profits even in difficult environments. So I think those are going to be the kind of equities that people want to hold. We migrate more heavily into those kind of things. And then I'll just say one last thing. 
doing. Because I'm bearish right now, the momentum is very bearish. The trend is, is bearish basically across most US equity sectors. So we're net short right now. So I'm shorting the S&P 500. I'm shorting the NASDAQ, shorting small cap stocks, shorting mid cap stocks. I'm long the US dollar because I think we're going to see some more dollar strength here. Um, shorting high yield um, bonds, those kind of things. That's what I do in my fund. And I, I do that for my separately managed account clients as well. A few points in there that uh, that wanted to discuss, and we can kind of take them further. But one was stagflation. I mean, if you look at uh, the setup, you got you know declining GDP, unemployment's low, uh, you know the whole nine yards. Most economic numbers are coming in weaker, uh, but then you've got inflation going through the roof. Which, if you look back at history, it looks very much like the '60s and '70s. Coupled with that, you have from the early '40s, late '30s, this this yield curve environment, which is, in my opinion, I mean, they told us in February 2020, they were, you know, looking at 1940s yield curve control. That's what we're seeing playing out in the 10-year and the 30-year and all the maturities in between is just, okay, how do we purchase on one part of the curve, sell on the other to kind of net neutral, land this plane like they've done for the last 40 or 50 years. But now we've kicked up this stagflation environment, which Kind of reared its head in 2018-19, but they were able to sort of manage out of out of with you know QE and QT and all the different Qs. Um, but now we're just at this point where hey, there aren't many levers that can be pulled to kind of drive this thing out. At some point, you have to take the medicine, get back to a sound collateral base. Now, if you throw Bitcoin in there, we've got four or five different collateral bases, but but we still got this excess credit throughout the system that needs to come down. I mean, it's not, it, it's bearish sounding, but it's the realities of it. I don't, I don't, I don't wish for any of it to come out and the investors and individuals have pain, but like, that's the picture that we're looking at. So when you look at Bitcoin through that scope, uh, what are the properties that, that maybe fit to help aid that easing? And what are the properties are like, I don't know, maybe a bad thing, just objectively, looking at the pros and cons, because this is an environment not seen many times in traditional markets. And then here we have this potential new, what I call it an asset class, but an asset class kind of pristine collateral base that, that services the way people need to use money. Um, so, so we don't know what's on the other side because we haven't seen that in a long time. So just curious to get your thoughts there. Yeah, well, you brought up a lot of great points. We could we could talk for an hour about <laughs> several things you just brought up. So I love it that you brought up the 60s and 70s and the similarities and then also the 30s and the 40s. That's how I view this. So I think the government playbook right now or the Fed's playbook right now is to treat it like post-war 1940s. So what did we have then? We had high and rising inflation and we had generally low interest rates. That's actually good from the governments and from the Federal Reserve's perspective, right? Because what they had at that point was this massive amount of unpayable debt from the, from the war, World War II, that they couldn't pay in sound money. So what did they do? They debased the currency. They, they let inflation run hot, kept interest rates low because they have to pay the interest on those treasury rates, right? But because inflation ran hot, it devalued the money, it debased the currency, meaning that on the backs of the American workers, they lost the value of their currency so the government could pay off its debts. Why did that work? It worked for a couple of reasons, I think. One is because we just basically helped win World War II, right? So spirits were very high in World War II. We were standing victorious. Europe was just wrecked. You know, Russia helped as well, but they got partly wrecked as well. So they had to do some rebuilding. We were obviously in just a fantastic position post-World War II. So, we, so our spirits were hot. That led to the 50s, which was just an amazing decade for the psyche of America. Um, what's different though? So back in the 30s, they made it illegal to own gold. So there was no way out of the US dollar system. And obviously Bitcoin didn't exist back then. So the people had to get, get on with this plan. They had to be a part of that and participate in. They basically said, the government's like, hey, even though most people didn't realize it, like, hey, we're actually debasing your currency. This is gonna help us pay off these World War II debts. And then it's gonna set the stage for a fantastic environment in the decades to follow. That happened, that was great. This time around, we're in a very similar situation. Inflation is running hot. Yields are very low. It's kind of quirky low. Um, you, could, you could argue that maybe the Fed has something to do with that. We're not doing official yield curve control, but there are just interesting things going on around the world. That's actually a very good thing, although they would never admit that. The Fed loves this environment right now. It's terrible on the Americans. It's great.
great for the Fed and this problem they have. We have literally absolutely unpayable debt. There's no possible way that we can pay the current debt in the United States based off of the current value of the dollar. The only way to get out of that is to either default on that debt, which isn't really a viable option, um, or the real option is just debase the currency. So that's what they're doing. They're, they've been printing crazy amounts of money. We're debasing the currency. Um, they like it. They want to let inflation run hot. The downside of that is Americans hate that cost of living goes way up, quality of life goes way down. That's when people start to get really antsy and angry and things and things like revolutions start happening. And so the big difference is this time around, gold ownership is no longer illegal, right? Anybody can own gold. So you can sort of opt out of the traditional financial system and go into gold. Or I would argue the much better alternative is Bitcoin. So everything that gold offers, Bitcoin is even better. I think it's either the same or better in almost every way you look at it. Um, the Fed didn't have this problem last time. They, the people were stuck with the U.S. dollar. Most of the world was using uh, the, the U.S. dollar. This time around, there are serious alternatives to that. So I'm not convinced that it's going to work this time. I think it's going to lead to a crisis in confidence in the dollar and that it's going to get rapidly debased and we're going to have serious issues with inflation. I don't think it's going to be transient inflation at all. I think this whole concept of stagflation, so a stagnant economy, high levels of inflation, I think they're going to stick around for at at least this whole decade and it's going to be a pretty ugly and tumultuous decade so i'm glad you brought up the point of opting out because i forgot about that when you were talking earlier that's a big thing for me and i, I don't think a lot of players have realized it. i think the bitcoin community as a whole gets it but more importantly we sit in this dollarized system so it's either dollars or not dollars so your choice is hold dollars to buy things or hold dollars because it's the best collateral for you at the moment uh, or get out of dollars get into stocks bonds gold whatever, uh, you know, real estate, whatever it may be. And so, but now we've got this period where all of these smaller countries, these third world countries that opted into Bretton Woods and, and kind of participated in Nixon coming off the gold standard because we're like, oh, go cool, we'll get in, be a part of this dollar network. And they took on these debts that increasingly the rate of change of the pain to them based on what happens with the yield curve and interest rates and inflation they started to realize in the kind of mid-90s and beginning of the Asian currency crisis, like, hey, we've got a problem because we can't get these dollars, but all our debts are in dollars. And then you go through the 20 or the 2000s and the mid-2000s particularly, and people start to say, we need a way out. And so what's unique about Bitcoin is worst case scenario, it kind of is like the spread offense in college football. It levels the playing field. I don't need Alabama's budget. I don't need the, the talent, the five-star consistent talent of Alabama. Uh, now I can spread everybody out as long as I can run a handful of plays that work really well and I get the ball in the hands of guys, in guys' hands in space, I have a shot. And so Bitcoin is giving those countries a shot to participate. And if you look at Bitcoin in all of the countries that have these massive rampant inflations and their currency crashes, Bitcoin spikes into that. And so it's telling you, you know, okay, so maybe they lose 10 or 15%, but it's better than 25% a day or 100% a week or, or what we've seen. So I think that levels the playing field, which puts it into that just global monetary asset class that can be used. And then on top of that, that is historically how money gets rebuilt. And so that's back to that macro health and the, and the just short Greek study that I did. Having that sound money is a great piece but it's not the only piece because for economic systems to generally grow and get GDP and all this product and revenue, you do have to introduce some credit. It's just when they get out of whack, like what we're seeing now is where the demise comes on the, on the whole system. Yeah. Great points. And, and, and to your final point about the credit system, I think it served a fantastic purpose and it really led to, you know, tons of prosperity, helped, helped to grow companies, helped to help people, you know, do things like buy houses and things that they wouldn't have been able to do as easily based on the, the government, the U.S. Uh, dollar fiat system. Um, it's going to be different, I think, on a Bitcoin standard for sure. And I do think a Bitcoin standard is, is coming. I think the credit portion of the monetary system of the future will be less prominent for sure. I think we'll have more of a savings culture uh, and like equity-based culture versus more of a credit-based culture. That's just kind of what Bitcoin does. And again, it's just because of the scarcity of Bitcoin and the way that it actually appreciates over time. So taking out a loan against that actually is kind of rough because trying to pay back 
payments as they increase over time could be could be a little tough on a Bitcoin based system. So I think it's just going to change dynamics. I think it's going to have a lot to do with repricing of assets over this decade as well, which which is good and bad. So if you are a real estate investor, you've been absolutely killing it. If you're BlackRock and you own a trillion dollars worth of, you know, I don't I don't know what the actual number is, but a lot of uh, real estate in their portfolio, they are not looking forward to a repricing, a downward repricing. But if you are, you know, a 25 year old who's just starting out getting married and you're looking at a house that should cost 200,000, but it actually costs $800,000 because it just the whole system is bananas. Um, the system sucks. It's really, it really blows and it's really hard to start out a good life. So a repricing is much needed in these kind of areas. You know, lots of these growth and innovation stocks as well that they, it used to be that like, two to three times a uh, uh, price to sales ratio used to be kind of a higher end price to sales ratio. I mean, some of these tech stocks got up to 50 30, times. 40, yeah. 30. Yeah. yeah. 50. Some of them were like, like just, I mean, they're just off the charts. That's just ridiculous. That's, you know, you're kind of in the final days. It's sort of a bubble sort of phase. It has to collapse at some point and come back into more reasonable valuations. So, you know, I, I think that Bitcoin is kind of the most obvious uh, investment of this decade. But at some point, what's going to happen is all of these stocks that are just wildly overvalued, these businesses that are just great businesses, but they're just too expensive. Those those valuations are going to contract. They're going to come in. And at some point, they're going to be great investments again. And people will actually be willing to part with their Bitcoin to buy things like stocks, buy things possibly like bonds, buy real estate again um, in the future. So but I think things will be priced much more reasonably at that point. And the market always makes you pay one way or another. Uh, it makes you pay on the upside when valuations get out of whack, they contract. It makes you pay to the downside when you're not paying attention to those assets that have gotten undervalued. So it's, it's always important to look at the data. And to me, when I look around, one of the bigger points over the last couple of years is just looking at productivity. But yes, our lifestyles in, in the West and, and developed countries have gotten better and better and better. But when you look at productivity in those same countries, it's just massive decline. Yeah, uh, it, it, It's just not there. And, and then you got the income gaps and, and the polarity and all the divide that we're seeing. And the one thing that is promising, in my opinion, and if you look at money and period throughout history, when productivity is high, your, your money is not being debased. And so I think what Bitcoin and the Bitcoin standard gets us back to is something that's just missing globally, right? Um, and, and that's productivity. So yes, I may not be able to buy as many basketballs or second homes or that sort of thing, but what I'm doing with my time, effort, and energy and what that store of value function of the money is giving me the ability for my capital to slowly grow throughout time, which allows me to put it back into whatever my work endeavors are, whatever my, my lifestyle needs are. It allows us to be more productive. And, uh, you know, if you just look at other promising periods, 17, 1800s, productivity was a lot higher. And there wasn't all this excess money in the system. So I think we lose sight of, uh, we, everybody kind of goes around and looks at their bank account. As long as I have this bank account number, I've made it. And, and they're missing that, that productivity piece, which um, the promise and one of the promises of Bitcoin, in my opinion, is it brings that back. It gets people focusing not on the money and like, what can I do with these resources to generate stuff that better lives? One other point from... A Bitcoin standpoint, what we've seen this year, uh, what we've seen largely for the last year and a half, this building leverage, this building credit within the Bitcoin network, the crypto ecosystem. How much uh, of that do you kind of feel like we should monitor, adjust our expectations in the future? Because that's what comes with mass adoption. That's what comes with Wall Street investment and interest is just that short term mentality of, well, I made 25% in two weeks, I'm out. Um, or here's the shiny thing in the room that I can build this story around uh, so I can bring in these assets, but I really don't care if it goes up or down. Like how, how does that change your thesis, if at all, around Bitcoin? Yeah, so, well, a couple of things. So first of all, you know, Bitcoin, like I said, I, I just think it's just money. It's it's better money. So, and it's it's the world's greatest savings technology. So like I said at the, the Bitcoin conference, like you don't trade your checking account, right? You're, you're, it's just money. I, I think when I see people talking on Twitter all the time and they're, everybody's always asking for price targets, they wanna know what it's gonna do in the short term. Just absolutely think that's the wrong way to think about Bitcoin, right? You just, what, what you need to think about for this is like, is how is it designed and where is it going in the future. So it's 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 officially, I think, a major asset class that trades on the winds of macroeconomic changes. So basically, what is the economy doing? 
what is inflation doing? What is the Fed doing? Like how much liquidity is there in the system? How much is there, is it being withdrawn or not? Like right now, right? We just started uh, quantitative tightening officially June 1st today. Um, so, so liquidity is drying up right now. There are short-term things that will cause the price of Bitcoin to contract, to come back down towards, I think what's sort of a base level of adoption. Uh, I'll digress here to say I'm a huge fan of basically the adoption demand side model of Bitcoin. I think that the price can be ascertained loosely based on um, um, demand, right, and acceptance around the world and as the infrastructure increases. So Metcalf's law applies here. Um, and I think that if you look at those kind of models, basically right now where Bitcoin is currently at about 30,000, um, it's right along that baseline model. So I think when we get in periods of excess where, say, the economy is strong, you know, inflation is under control, but, you know, kind of 2% ish or so, um, and the Fed is backing the markets with liquidity. So quantitative easing is going on, those kind of things. Bitcoin will get ahead of its growth model and go way up. And that's where we'll see those big parabolic rises higher. As much as everyone loves those and as much as it makes things exciting, those aren't normal and they're unhealthy. And so they have to come back down eventually and get repriced. And that's what we're seeing right now. We're seeing that in Bitcoin. We're seeing that across all risk on assets. It sucks to go through if you're a long-term hodler and you're just kind of holding through this kind of stuff, but it's very healthy. Um, to me, it's sort of akin to a kid who's used to just walking into a candy store and eating all the candy he wants. And you pull the kid away from that and be like, we're going to make you healthy and you're going to have to start eating healthy real food. You know, I got to eat steak and, and uh, fruits and vegetables and things like that. The kid's going to hate it and have a tantrum and, and lose his mind. But a week later, a month later, he's going to be much healthier because you did that. So I think that's the same thing with these markets. They get out of hand. Uh, speculation gets out of hand. Leverage use gets out of hand. This is a natural flushing of the system. And I think so over the long run, I have just like 100% confidence, 99.9% .9 confidence um, of where Bitcoin is going in the future. And that it's just going to continue to follow the S-shaped curve of adoption. Um, and what that means for price on a logarithmic scale is it just basically keeps going up and to the right, slow, steady. Um, when it gets too hot, um, that's a time to be a little bit more cautious. But when it gets to the point where I think it's fairly valued or cheaply valued like it is right now, this is the time to be buying in droves. This is the time to be doing dollar cost averaging. Um, I said it uh, a couple months ago, again, at the conference that I think 2022 is going to be a sat stackers paradise. Like this is the time where you want to be dollar cost averaging heavily into Bitcoin um, because um, 2023, 24, 25, at some point we're going to bottom where the recession is going to be complete. Um, prices are going to be reset. And then it's just going to be kind of off to the races again, because the Fed will pivot. They'll go back from quantitative tightening to quantitative easing. I think QE4 will absolutely dwarf QE1, 2, and 3 combined. Um, uh, and then risk on assets, again, are just going to take off and we're just going to have these continual boom and bust cycles. So learn how to play them, learn to recognize value and quit focusing on short term price action. And that's uh, so what I counsel people like quit trying to pick the bottom, just like learn to recognize value. Like Bitcoin is very, very fairly valued and it's even cheap right now. Historically, this is the time to be buying um, instead of trading it. So I'll stop there. Yeah, all I would add there is um, I did a podcast recently with Timothy Peterson. He's done a lot of work on Metcalf's Law Network Effect. It's very phenomenal work, um, very clearly kind of lays out how these modern networks work that we've seen in social, these other places. But it, it's just all demand-based, which back to your value background and the fundamental, like the, the asymmetry that's available is following those fundamental signals. It's not following where's Bitcoin priced at today. Right, because that does get out of whack based on just, you know, hey, what needs to be sold or, or what story can we build? And so I really appreciate that. I like that a lot. So anybody that wants to know more about it, I would look at Network Effects, my cast law. And I just want to second yeah. that. Timothy does great work. I, I discovered him like a month or two ago, and he does, I think, the best work out there on, on how to value uh, Bitcoin based on kind of Metcalf's law uh, on adoption, those kind of things. To me, that's by far the most reasonable way mm -hmm. to look at it. It's been the most accurate as well. There was a lot of hype about stock to flow uh, years ago. Mm -hmm. I, I, when I first read it, I was very intrigued by it, and I kind of got on board. And then the more I thought about it, I'm like, this just isn't right, though. That doesn't totally make sense. This is not how adoption works. Um, I think 
thinking about Bitcoin adoption and how to price it in terms of the adoption of other major secular trends. You know, you can think back to like the personal computer to uh, cell phone adoption, to internet growth, to social media growth. That's the way to think about Bitcoin. And that's where we are this early phase of the S, uh, the S curve. Um, so that's what makes it exciting. And to think about it for as an, as an investment, as a holding of savings for the next 10, 20 years and beyond, uh, we're just at a fantastic point in the adoption curve. And, and one of the points on that, it makes sense, you know, as more altcoins come out, there's more things for other people in the market to focus on. So maybe a large percentage of users that five years ago would have gravitated to Bitcoin because it was primarily the only thing out there. Now get off into some other thing that may or may not work out. Odds are, we can see, as history says, they won't work out. In that case, it detracts from that network effect. But where it is accretive to that network effect is in these washout moments, because all of a sudden, most of the market participants that are looking at these other eight, nine, 12,000 coins, are like, man, I just got it handed to me. Like, I believe in this cryptocurrency thing, but I need to go back to the pristine and you see that money flow back. And, and so that was one of the things um, I've said it before, but Nick Zabo says something to the fact that if you get in Bitcoin, it's not you know, what prices of the day should I buy or sell it? It's, it's for your money because of those halving cycles and getting lost in the price kind of takes your focus away from that. When you put money in as an investment for it to be a store of value, it needs to last over time. And that's what's different about Bitcoin and more similar, as you mentioned, like gold, but we don't have that in our fiat currencies because the math works in reverse for those. Hopefully as mainstream adoption and Wall Street adoption, we, we kind of maintain that and it doesn't get ruined uh, as we've seen with money over time it does, but uh, we, we keep that for kind of a 30, 50, 70 years to kind of reset as, as we talk about. That's what's most important in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. So we've covered a lot of ground. Uh, we could probably talk on some other points, but you know, be respectful of your time. And I know listeners don't want to go through a marathon. Uh, so where can everybody find you? Sure. So yeah, if you want to um, learn more about uh, Valeshire and my investment strategies, you can check out Valeshire.com. I obviously run portfolios uh, really differently than, than a lot of uh, money managers do. So if you, you want to just reach out to me directly about that, you can just send me an email at info at Valeshire.com. And then day to day, I'm always on Twitter. Uh, I'm, I'm on there too much probably. So I spend a lot of time doing Twitter spaces and things like that. You can look me up there. My handle uh, there is at Valeshire Cap. That's V-A-I-L-S-H-I-R-E-C-A-P. Um, but yeah, those are, those are where you can find me most frequently. Perfect. Well, thanks for joining today, Jeff. Thanks for having me, Kane. It was a lot of fun. Yeah.